0: Do you remember ever saying this statement, or perhaps having it said uh, to you by your parents, well, if your friend told you to jump off a bridge, would you do it? No. <laughs> Good answer. It's a classic question that flows out of the problem of peer pressure, the tension of, um, that one feels inside to please others or to conform to what's happening around you, or, or perhaps those who are around you, to not stick out from the crowd in a distinct or different bad or embarrassing way. And we normally think of peer pressure in terms of uh, young people, teenagers or, or young adults whose trajectory in life isn't quite set yet, and so they're, they're more easily influenced by those that they hang around with. Perhaps they're mature enough to make some significant decisions, but maybe not Enough to understand the lifelong implications of some of those decisions. But I think that's unfair. Peer pressure goes beyond the young. And all you have to do is look at uh, the Instagram envy phenomenon to know that that is the case. That uh, we want to keep up with each other and we want to see these sanitized and glamorized lives that are presented. And social media. And so it makes us feel that that pressure to guide our own decisions and our own values according to what other people think. And so there is no age limit on worrying about what other people think of us. But the kind of peer pressure that I want to talk about particularly this morning is, is the kind that we have as as Christians, as evangelical Christians that we have a pressure that everything is okay. Because after all, Jesus came to bring life, and and to bring abundant life. And and if our life isn't that way, well, we'd prefer actually not to talk about it. Thank you. Uh, I found over the years in church work that many families uh, have Sunday mornings as a particularly stressful time as they try to pull themselves together for church. Sometimes there's difficulties and arguments, and, and then you get to church, and we're fine. We are doing quite well, thank you, and we enter in and we meet and worship and celebrate, and all is well. And, and, and I hope that your Sunday morning was just fine. Perhaps it was. But even so, you get my point, right? We face a spiritual peer pressure that pushes against Seeing that life or parts of life are really hard, that we're struggling, that things are out of control, and that's in a society that values control almost more than anything else. It's tough. When was the last time that you felt able to come to a church, and when you were asked how you were doing, you were able to say, well, I came today, but I'm struggling to believe that any of this is true. Or, I'm here, but I feel like unbelievers have better questions than we have answers. Or, I'm upright, which is saying a lot, given how much of a mess my family is in. Or my marriage is in. Or my financial situation is in. Or my love life is in. Or my walk with Jesus is in. Or fill in the blank, you get the point, right? things you don't say at church actually how about one more one one ring to rule them all how about i'm here but i don't feel like god is i can't seem to find him anywhere have you ever felt like that perhaps you're feeling it now you see that one brings us right to our psalm this morning the lament of an abandoned king, one who felt abandoned, and how this poem uh, can help us as it as it expressed his disequilibrium. How it can help us with the pressures and the difficulties of our lives. This is a psalm of lament, and psalms of lament tend to blow the doors off of a spiritual peer pressure, because a lament in itself is an admitting of an experience, an experience of a problem or a difficulty or a trouble, and in this one it's one that the psalmist has. But he's not being quiet about it. In fact, he doesn't succumb to the view that a proper spiritual life hides feelings of alienation or or guilt over sin or even doubt of the realities the scripture speaks of instead these things become the very content of his prayer that's what a psalm of lament is and in this psalm strangely enough the abandoned king is praying to the very one that he feels is not there interesting isn't it psalms of lament can be difficult for us because they're not very cheery uh, because they deal with troubles in life, and, and that's one thing. But another is that they invite us, in fact, they even compel us to voice the things that we don't want to voice, to acknowledge the things that we don't want to acknowledge, to say the things that we cannot feel that we can voice if we want to be regarded as spiritually mature or godly Christians. They invite us to admit to ourselves who we really are in all of our messiness. And we don't really enjoy doing that much. But we need to. Mm-hmm. It is quite interesting that the Psalms are the most common type of psalm. There's Over, over a third of them are, are laments, and, uh, and many of the non-laments have elements of lament in them. And they voice all kinds of troubles and emotions that we deal with in life. Anger and betrayal and lust and sexuality and envy and disappointment and desire for wealth and depression. And this morning, that sense of not knowing one's way, of disorientation, loneliness, and abandonment. And even I suspect we're going to see, we can throw in there an element of suspicion of being betrayed. These are things that we feel in life. And so in a real way, laments can help us understand what it is like to walk through the deep, dark, deathly valleys that Psalm 23 says our pathways sometimes lie. So I'd like to look at this psalm, and I'd like to do it in three steps. First, we're going to investigate it. We're going to look at it as a piece of ancient Hebrew poetry. This poem is about 3,000-some years old. I think that's pretty impressive, don't you? It's had a lot of readings over the years. (laughs) And then we're going to look at how how and why it's relevant to Christians today, and then we'll end by thinking about how it's relevant to us, ourselves, and how it can help us. So let's start off with investigating the psalm uh, psalm 142 is one of about 14 psalms in the psalter that have a historical note attached to them you can see it it's actually part of the psalm uh, even though it's not doesn't have a verse number does in hebrew a maskil of david when he was in the cave a prayer lots of research has gone into these notations lots of articles and books. And in the end, there's no real reason to not believe that these notes were attached to the psalm. It's hard to say when, but they were attached to the psalm so that we would know the context out of which to read it, that they inform us how to read this psalm. And this psalm is said to have been written by David when he was in the cave. And that is a, a very difficult time for him when he was hiding out in a cave from Saul, the cave of Abdullam, you can read about it in 1 Samuel 22, and Saul was hunting him in order to take his life. Now there's another cave in, Saul, in 1 Samuel 24 that could provide the context for this. Opinions are divided on it. I think it's a little less likely. I think it's chapter 22, but if you think it's chapter 24, we can still have fellowship together. <laughs> Uh, David had already been anointed by Samuel. He was the, the anointed king who was going to his, attain his kingdom. God had given his the kingdom, and yet Saul was still reigning on the throne as the illegitimate rebel king. God had announced to Saul that his monarchy was being taken away from him and was going to be given to David. But still, Saul ruled, tad bit, tad bit on the illegitimate side of things. And so clearly, David was a great threat to Saul. That's why he was chasing him, to kill him. And this psalm then needs to be read in the light of David's desperation of a man being hunted and chased. He's there in a hidden, inaccessible, natural refuge where he could cower. And First Samuel 22 says that he was, had a band of the poor and the misfits and the debt-ridden of society who gathered around him, and he was their captain. They provided little comfort to him in his feelings of, of having been abandoned by God. And this deep sense of confusion that he has of aloneness and abandonment leads him to prayer. And and you see in the notation, that's what this is. This is a prayer out of the depths of a cave prison vocalized by a king who thinks himself abandoned. So once again, this is a cheery one this morning for us. There are... uh, Numerous suggestions as to how this psalm is structured. I think this is the simplest and easiest. It starts with a cry of abandonment. In the middle is the lament of what is, what is wrong and what David is feeling. And then in verse 5 on, you see him crying out and asking for um, deliverance. Now, lament psalms, as we, as we read this, they have a certain form. And if we know the form, it helps us read and understand the psalm. And so I want to give you those. I'm not going to touch on all of these, but here are the different parts of a lament psalm, and I put in the, ver- in the parentheses afterwards where you find them in this psalm. And let me mention just a few of them. The first one is extremely important. Uh, they have an initial cry to God. And you can see that uh, with my voice I cry to the Lord. With my voice I, I, I ask for mercy, I make supplication, I pour out my complaint, explain my troubles to Him. And so it's, it, there's a statement where the psalmist begins by crying out to God. And secondly, a lament The psalms obviously have to have a lament, don't they? And in this one you can see it there in verses 3 and 4. David pours out his lament, his complaint, but it's not a whining. It's not like uh, something's not to his liking as though his, his beverage is too warm. But rather, it's something significant in life that is amiss and that, that he doesn't feel should be amiss because of his relationship with God. He's being pursued and hunted like an animal forced to a trap. You see that at the end of verse 3. They've hidden a trap from me. It's an external problem and a crisis that he's feeling, but, but it's caused this deeper inner travail in him. It's an internal disorientation that he's feeling. He's alone even while he's, he's in the midst of this ragtag army that's amassing around him it's so bad 1 Samuel 22 tells us that David had to go to the king of Moab and ask the king of Moab to protect his parents from Saul during this time first he's an anointed king and then he's an abandoned king the third part you see there that I want to mention it's number 4 a psalm, a psalm of lament has petitions. Because he had a problem, David has requests that he thinks would help remedy the situation. And we'll look at these in verse 6 in a few moments. But finally, psalms of lament, with only two or three exceptions, all have a turning point where the lament turns to praise. And in this psalm, you can see it at the very end in verse 7. So that he To come out of prison... So that he can give thanks, and the righteous will surround me; that it ends in lifting high uh, God's name. So there's a vow to praise and, and a description of what the praise will look like. So those are the parts that you're going to find in the in this you know over a third of the psalms. This general form. Not every one every one of those five will be there, but quite often they will, and it'll help you read the psalm better. But really, the easiest way to grasp a lament psalm is to ask four basic questions. And we're going to do that here. And this is what they are. Who, why, what, and how? The first question is, who does the psalmist want to listen to his cry? And the obvious answer to this, invariably, is going to point us to the Lord, the covenant God, isn't it? I mean, it only makes sense. The whole point of a lament is telling God what the problems are. So it might seem a bit obvious, but in asking this question, we start to uncover some rather foundational things in this short prayer. For instance, seven times in this prayer, David vocalizes his thoughts and his desires to God. Look at them with me. Uh, Verse 1, with my voice I cry. With my voice I ask for mercy. With my voice I pour out complaints. I tell troubles. And then down in verse um, 5, I cry. I cry. And you can see how many times he vocalizes his troubles to God. David simply doesn't feel that God is present, and so he calls out to him, he pours out to him, he reveals to him what his troubles are from the depths of the cave. If you note the statement there in, in um, where am I? Oh, yeah, the beginning of, of verse four look to the right and see. Some translations will help you out and say, look to the right hand and see. The right hand is where one's advocate stood. Where one's representative stood. One's defender stood. And David says, there's no one there. I don't have a right-hand man. What makes matters even worse is that several times in the Psalms, the one who is to be standing there is God. And so you can feel the depths of what David is feeling as he speaks to God. David is not so subtly accusing God of not being and doing his job. So we can feel his disorientation, can't you? If God would only listen, if his, if his presence was only there, he would surely act. And if God had anointed David, then how can it be that he's not here at this critical time to help him? It's kind of a bait and switch, isn't it? God, you anoint me, and then you abandon me. the who question is really a key one for this psalm god is the who and he's not listening and david's wondering if he's even around then we ask the why question why is the psalmist experiencing trouble and we've already noted a bunch of this david was the true king and he's being pursued by the false king the rebel king saul saul is illegitimately ruling god's people and he's chasing David into a trap into this prison-like cave. He's unable to come or to go at his own will. And in the depths of that cave, in verse five, David says, I, or, or I'm sorry, verse four, "No refuge remains to him that his refuge is not strong enough to counter the strength of Saul and his army. David's only hope to the why is the great who?" of our first question, the great refuge of Israel, the Lord himself, who has to listen and who has to act on his behalf. David has done nothing wrong in this psalm. This is not a psalm about David's sin. So why is God absent? The third question then is what? What does the psalmist, what does David want God to do about his troubles? And there are three answers to that question, aren't they? In verse 6, you see, he says, Listen to me. He wants God to give heed, to attend to his cry. Second, he wants God to deliver him out of Saul's hands. Uh, Pursuers might be a better translation than persecutors here, especially given the hunting imagery, to to save him, to deliver him, to, to... Free him out of these people who are pursuing him, seeking his life. David is tired. You see his spirit is faint within him. He is very low. Verse 6, he wants God to tip the scales in his favor. And so he's praying, he's asking for these things to address his situation and the third petition is found in verse 7 to be freed to be brought out of this prison cave where joyous praise to God is suppressed because of how difficult things are so he's experiencing it. he's he's crying out to God he's experiencing these troubles this is why he's experienced them this is what he wants God to do about it and then finally how does he anticipate that God is going to resolve his trouble. And the answer really is simply the actualization of the requests. Verse six, falling, you know, listen, attend to my cry. I'm brought very low. Deliver me, save me from my, my, my pursuers. They're too strong for me. Free me. Bring me out of this prison so I may thank you and give thanks to your name. And the righteous will surround me and you'll deal bountifully with me. The word surround there has denotations of a crown. So as the crown surrounds the head, so the people will surround him. So we shouldn't think of just kind of like a a happy uh, gathering of people. Rather, there's a real royal and regal element to this. That as David is freed from the cave and is crowned and surrounded by the rightful Position that he has been anointed for, his people will surround him in like manner. God is going to establish David as king, and David anticipates that there will be praise, and there will be thanks, and there will be honor given to God for what he has done. The generosity, the bountifulness with which he has dealt with David that's what he anticipates happening to resolve this lament. God will come back and He will be and He will listen as the covenant Lord should. Well, if you, I think if you remember those four questions, those elements, that's going to help you as you read a lot of the Psalms. It'll, it will help make sense to them. Um, this Psalm has the advantage of that historical note, but, uh, but those questions and those elements will help you, I think, as you read. And they also help us now come to the question of how this psalm is relevant to us who live millennia later and so that brings us to its relevancy in jesus now as i said this is an ancient poem written in a different language millennia old and yet today we regard them as relevant to us in a way differently than say the poetry of homer or of virgil And and the baseline is that the relevancy and the meaning comes from the psalms' connection to Jesus. These psalms belonged to Him. They were His psalms. And because we are His, then the psalms are ours as well. They come to us through Him. We are neither Jews, nor are we in the Old Covenant. And so we are connected to these psalms through Him, and we need to read them through that lens. He claimed to fulfill the Old Testament Scriptures. And the New Testament writers frequently use the Psalms to prove that fulfillment. And so we have to realize that they, they point to Jesus as their fulfiller. It's an extremely important point. Because if we don't read the Psalms, and, and actually the whole Old Testament, through the lens of Jesus, we're going to end up with, in some undesirable locations, uh, as we're going to see here in a minute. But thankfully, I don't, I don't think it's difficult to see Jesus in this psalm. So let me kind of re-tell it to you and hopefully show you what I mean. So we have the anointed king of Israel who has been appointed by God through his prophet, and he is the coming king. But there is another rebel king who has claimed the throne, and against him our anointed king is struggling to attain his authority. The anointed king is alone. It's as though he came to his own, but his own haven't received him. He can't entrust himself to them because he knows that they are not true. And so he's there by himself, and in a legal setting of a trial no one is offered the anointed a defense um, before the judges. He stands alone, abandoned by everybody. In verse 5, you see that he claims that God is his portion in the land of the living. That's the status of the priests and the Levites. They were not given land In Israel, because God was their portion, they served him at the tabernacle. And so, to have God be your portion is a priestly thing. So, we have the abandoned king who is now a priestly king. And you see him now abandoned deep inside of a rock tomb, awaiting for God to bring him out, to free him, so that praise might be given to God's name. And then finally, the anointed anticipates being highly exalted, given a kingdom, being given a crown, and surrounded by God's people as they celebrate God's bountiful grace and goodness in what He has done. So if we hear that psalm that way, does it remind you of anybody else? You see, if we read the psalm, through the lens of anointed kings, David the shadow and Jesus the fulfillment, we have a very important corrective to how we read, interpret, and apply this psalm to ourselves. Because if we try to identify with David, if we identify with David we, we arrive at a very different idea. We have a notion that in the low points of our life, when we're struggling the most, at our most difficult times, all we need to do is to cry out with an intensity to God. And He is going to hear us. And He's going to answer us. And He's going to deliver us. And it's going to be generously, bountifully done. See what has happened? We have set the table for the prosperity gospel, haven't we? By identifying with David, we have inadvertently said, well, if God helped David, he's going to help me. I just need to cry out. I just need to grasp in faith that he's there and that he is going to get me what I need, and then, of course, I will repay him by thanking him for it. But a very different picture emerges when we read it through the lens of the two anointeds, the anointed of the old and the great fulfiller of the new, Jesus, instead of seeing God's task as as answering our call in trouble, we realize that the way God teaches His anointed kings to trust and obey is by putting them into positions where they must trust and obey. That That if He wants them to, to cry out to them, He has to put them in a position where they must cry out. And the writer of Hebrews is clear that Jesus, as magnificent as he was in the God-man hypostatic union, he still had to be tested and to learn obedience. The way God teaches his anointed ones, both the anointed king of Israel and David and his very son, The way he teaches them, the way he hears and answers is by placing them in positions where they must realize that they are in great need. We see both David and Jesus. It's in the dark valleys that we learn of his presence. That he will never forsake us. It's on the dark paths that we learn to be guided by his voice. By seeing the psalm through the lens of the two anointed kings, we learn that troubles are not the shame of a religious, self-focused peer pressure, but they are the certain, timeless, unfailing method by which God molds all of His chosen ones into the image of His Son. Doesn't David's cry of desperation remind you of Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane? where he, the travail is sweat as though it was blood? Or his mournful lament on the cross, my God, my God, why haven't you forsaken me? Doesn't David's expectation of a victorious kingship remind you of Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, where he anticipates the glorious fulfillment, the completion of all that God is doing through him to bring in his kingship and bring us salvation through his death and his resurrection, if this is how God trains his anointed kings, how can we as the followers expect anything different? And that's a completely different message than thinking, if I identify with David and just pray really hard, God's going to hear me and get me what I want. No, this psalm, is of a king being trained for service to the Lord. So, how is the psalm relevant to us? Well, a few things come to mind. I hope you won't mind me quoting Mother Teresa, but this is a great quote. She said that we never know that Christ is all that we need until Christ is all that we have. And this psalm reminds us of that as we see that only clinging to the Lord will bring the hope and the anticipation and the endurance that we need to get through the struggles of life that God is using to train us. You see, it's impossible to cry out to God in our need when we are surrounded by all the things that we think we need. Laments and particularly this lament, drive us to seek God as our sole value. Uh, This practice of seeking Him and His kingdom lies behind all the New Testament injunctions to endure, to hold fast, to cling to our certain hope, to not turn back. No matter how difficult times may be, we cry out to the one that we know is there even when we don't know that He's there. For some of our brothers and sisters around the world, they are praying the truth of this psalm while they give their lives. Their reality doesn't really embrace a religious peer pressure like we, like we have. And our time for that may come. But if it does, it will be the truth of this psalm that points the way to enduring through those difficult times and preparing for those difficult times. We follow the anointed kings in their unrelenting pursuit and lament and searching for God. Even when we wonder where He is. Even when we wonder what He's doing. This is how he trains us for faithfulness. Another application is that it's right and proper, I think, to vocalize our thoughts and our requests to God. Even though reflecting back, we tend not to want to admit that, but it's right and it's proper to do that. David cries out, and his voice is bouncing off of the cave walls. The Psalms are full of this auditory speech. This out loud communication with God. There's singing and there's shouting and there's music and there's crying and there's weeping and there's laughing. And even the word that is translated, often translated meditate means to mumble out loud, not to think within oneself. And this emphasis on vocalizing I think is very important to us for two reasons. First, saying something out loud changes things. It changes the way we think we 're actually committing ourselves as we say something to what we 're saying that's why it's so important as a, a biblical uh, value to be truthful to hold on to what you say because you're committing yourself to it there's a whole there's a whole field of study about this, speech act theory. but what you say matters and it changes how you think and, and and how you process situations. A young man can look at his beloved and can think about his proposal in his mind all that he wants, but until he actually says the words, Will you marry me? He's not going to become engaged. So by speaking out loud, David condemns a spiritual peer pressure that pretends because he's vocalizing and he's admitting that all is not well and that God is the one who can solve it. He pours out to God what he doesn't want inside. All of the doubt, all of the betrayal that he's, he's been anointed a king and here he is in a rock tomb. He's the loss. I've been promised a kingdom and I've been given a cave. And it's important that David says this out loud to God, not to others, although we have this conversation recorded. Pouring out to others what, what is to be poured out to God is never a profitable move. It damages relationships. So we need to be careful what we say, but we need to say it and commit ourselves to it before God. But secondly, when David speaks out loud, he is committing himself and affirming that someone is there when he feels precisely that someone is not. It is faith over feeling. Despite feeling that God is not there, David knows that he is. And his words commit him to that. And in like manner, even in dark times, we must commit ourselves to the fact that Jesus spoke to us I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And so our prayer might be I know you're there, but why are you not here? At the same time, speaking these words will slowly train us to learn that He is always there. He is always at our right hand, never changing, ever living to make intercession for us, as Hebrews says, and as we saw in the story or see in the story of Stephen. This prayer of telling the all-knowing one our troubles. He already knows, doesn't he? Look, He says that in verse 3, uh, when my spirit is faint within me, you know my way. And yet he tells them anyway. He's seeking out the presence of the all-present one, the one who is there, but he doesn't feel it. And so he knows he's there And this process of seeking Him out in the struggles where where we're dealing with and yet we know that He is faithful to it, that is what allows us to live with the tension of having struggles and trials that disorient us and trouble us while also having a hope and a joy that can spring from those very same troubles. We don't feel that he knows we don't feel that he's there and yet we know that he is there and that he knows we can admit to difficulties to him and to each other because of the hope of knowing that he already knows and he's using them for his good plan just as he did for both the picture of the anointed king and the real anointed king of jesus Hebrews 12, 2 says, Looking to Jesus, he's enjoining us to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That passage in this psalm, and, and think of, of Philippians 2 as well. He, he humbled himself and took the form of a servant. Now he's exalted with a name above every name. Humiliation Difficulty always precedes exaltation. And that's what this psalm is teaching us. This anointed kings teach us that in the struggles of life, we have the painful relationships, rejection, physical difficulties, even for some, martyrdom. Well, they're never desirable. It's not something like, ooh, ooh, pick me for that. We know that God knows our way. And we can rejoice knowing that He is using those things for his plan of bringing everything together in christ so that we can strangely enough we can rejoice and we can lament at the same time out of the same struggles and both are proper and good and finally the end goal of this is the praise and the thanking of god and his name the lifting high of that name that is above every name, that of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. It is the resolution of this psalm because that is the culmination of the world. The New Testament tells us that God is bringing everything together in Christ Jesus. And these two kings teach us that if we are going to have uh, our problems solved just for our own benefit, we're asking too little. That actually what we are to desire and what we, what we want is to ask that we might be better fitted into this plan of the one who already knows our way, who's committed to us, to deal bountifully with us as his chosen one, and to bring his glorious plan together in Jesus Christ. And so lament resolution is actually about God's glorious plan, not our comfort. So at the end of it all, this psalm is for the Christian. It's for the one who has placed their trust in Jesus Christ as this King, as the Savior, as the Lord to whom this psalm points to. It addresses though the issue of when life doesn't seem so abundant, when joy doesn't seem, when joy does seem so distant, and God seems so far away, and life is not what we signed up for. And it provides a method of bringing our cries before Him authentically, even while we know He already is aware, He knows our path, He knows where it's leading, and we long for the resolution of our problems so that He might be glorified and Jesus Christ might be extolled. And that's going to look different than a resolution that just solves my problems and benefits me and so in the end god will indeed deal bountifully because by faith in his son we share in his death and his resurrection and we are the ones then the righteous ones given that righteousness because of christ's death for us that's us at the end of verse seven where are we in this psalm that's us We are going to surround Him because we share in His death and resurrection by faith in Him. We gather around Him gloriously thanking God for what He has done. All of our problems resolved. Sharing in the salvation that Jesus has so bountifully provided for us. Sharing in His sufferings until all is resolved. And ultimately, we share in the great inheritance of Christ himself. Because if God has given us him, what will he withhold from us? So let this psalm encourage you to embrace who you are, come before God, and hope even in the midst of difficulties. Let's take a few moments and, uh, and think about this, pray about this psalm together before we sing our closing songs.